Hello, my loves. I am so excited for this. I am. I've been waiting for this moment to finally have her on today. My angel, everyone, can we welcome Jessica Baum to the to the podcast today? Hey, Jessica, how are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. I know it, it's been a minute. I've been trying to book this interview with you. I've been like, and the minute I got the email, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so ready. Um, before we deep dive into your book, by the way, it's so great. I'm halfway through it. I, it's speaking to me. That's why when I said my angel, that's why when I was reading it and learning and understanding more about anxious attachment styles and about myself, I'm like, wow, she's, she spoke to me. I'm like, hello. Hi. Like, where have you been all my life? <laughs> So, um, for my listeners who aren't familiar with your background, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got started? Sure. I mean, that's a deep question. I think I actually had many careers before I became a psychotherapist. So just trying to find my calling and I suffered from a lot of depression and anxiety at one point in my life. And I moved from Manhattan down to Florida and worked with horses And I decided I wanted to help people primarily with depression at first, believe it or not. And I found myself in the addiction world, working with codependency and had struggled with that myself and became fascinated with the energy and dynamics in relationships. So I became an Imago, a certified Imago therapist, which is um, relationship therapy and understanding different dynamics that play out in relationships and working with family systems and couples and yeah, I just spent many years in private practice. And then I realized, okay, well, I want to create something to help more people who get stuck in these dynamics that are very painful and help people heal. So that's why I decided to write a book. Yeah, I love I love that. And so in the book, actually, talk about the fairy tale myth in the section of it. Can you, where you talk about like the fantasies about the romantic love, how we were fed about those. Can you t- Can we take a deep dive into that? Sure. Yeah. Deep dive, especially for someone who is anxious attached. But a lot of people is that when we're young and if we're experiencing any abandonment or neglect or anything, we can escape into um, TV. And there's so many stories out there, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, you know, there's all these stories about being rescued and finding love and then everything being okay. And I think it's a way to adapt and survive and project that, you know, one day someone's going to save you and make you feel whole. And it's really an adaptation in the survival mechanism. That's quite beautiful, but it sets you up for disappointment later because relationships are full of wounds and work and struggles and all of these things So we project this idea that, you know, it should be perfect. And when you meet that perfect person, that it's all roses from there, you met your person and that's it. And actually the work starts after the honeymoon phase is over, after, you know, the fall from grace, as I like to say, it happens when you start seeing your partner's parts that you don't like, when pain surfaces, when uncomfortability surfaces, it's all a flashlight into your own self and your own intimacy with yourself and your own wounds and and an opportunity to heal, but it jolts so many people because our society really does not set up uh, this idea of a conscious relationship and what relationships are really about. Yeah. And so you were saying during that portion that after the honeymoon phase, is it like, they say after four months, they, you start to 
know the person more in depth after the four-year month or four-year i'm not talking today four-month part in the relationship so after four months you've been together you learn more about them is that true so the honeymoon phase can last two days to two years typically what the research says and so it it's different for every couple and the transition out of it can be like a, a, like a boom. And it can also be like a slow transition out of it. So it's not like, yeah, I mean, you want to, I always tell people you want to learn if you can fight well in your relationships, mm -hmm. you want to not only see the positive you want to see, you know, that your partner's full of all these parts and has their own wounding and brings their own stuff in, which is totally okay. And you want to learn how to basically struggle well with your partner, if yeah. that makes sense, because yes. no relationship is without its own struggles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, um, I guess to piggyback off of what you said, is needing constant like reassurance in a relationship a form of being anxiously attached to your partner or no? Yes. Um, and there's nothing wrong with needing assurance in a relationship. In fact, if you need reassurance and your partner can offer that to you, you will need it less and less because you'll start to build trust. Yeah. So, so, you know, the paradox is, you know, people are like, oh, this person's so needy or this and that and the other thing. And it's like, if you're in a safe relationship, you learn to depend on the other person. And that actually brings interdependency because the safety is there. If the other person's a little more avoidant and they back away and they can't give you that reassurance, it could stir up more anxiety. And that's nobody's fault. The other person just can't provide that sense of security, which an anxious person needs to also work from within with as well. So it needs to come from within, which my book address. And also, it also needs to come from safe relationships that offer consistency, warmth, and a sense of reliability. Yeah, I, I need to get to that portion. <laughs> I don't think I'm there yet. I'm about halfway through because no, in my, I'll have to say my last relationship I talked about it on the podcast. Um, it was very, how do I say it? it was I was just very like, I need reassurance because I was in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh my God, he's doing X, Y, Z. And I just had to keep texting. I'm like, okay, like, how are you? Da, 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 da. Like I, it was just constantly running a mock in my mind and it eventually got exhausting. Yeah. And it is, it's, um, it's scary for people whose systems are wired for inconsistency to feel fear when our partner is not there, no matter what, because our system is used to being dropped. It's not used to always being held. And so that fear might not be rational, but it is living in your body and it is a scary experience. And many people struggle with that. Yes, yes. And like people, especially the, my age demographic, they're so quick to jump into a relationship and not realize, I guess, how do I, not the ramifications, but what it takes to, to be with your partner, to nourish them, to take their baggage and take your baggage. And it's a lot. And I, and I wish they understood that more, if you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think it can be confusing to like for most people, like what is my baggage that I'm projecting into the relationship and making the other person responsible for and what can they be aware of but not feel responsible for? And that can be very tricky. 
um, because a person can make you feel not abandoned or special or wonderful. And then all of a sudden that person doesn't do that anymore. And you place that, that responsibility on them still. And that happens in so many relationships. I don't really know a relationship where it doesn't happen in some degree. I'm a couples counselor. So maybe I see it happening more and more, but you know, it's, it's our partner's job to be there for us. We want to feel special and seen in our relationships, but if we don't feel special, on our own. And if we have abandonment wounds, we might place an over a sense of over responsibility on each other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're talking uh, about the system and I was going to ask you for my, have my questions written out in front of me right now. That's why I keep looking down on my phone. Um, that how does the nervous system impact the relationship? Like how does it drive it? It drives everything. Our automatic nervous system It's always, yeah, there's something called neuroception. So our body is constantly scanning for threat or safety. And this is happening on a subconscious level as well. And threat or safety could look very different for you than for me. I mean, for me, it could be you're picking up your your cell phone, you're rolling your eyes. It could be the tone you're coming at me with. It could be lack of eye contact. It could be all these things. It can be an inner thought. You know, that isn't even, it could be a song, but our body is, is always scanning the environment for a sense of safety or a threat. And when we shift out of what we call a ventral state of safety, which is a fluid state where we have eye contact and we're open and we're curious to a threat, we shift into our sympathetic nervous system and the fight, flight, we can shift even further into a shutdown or a freeze if we're really, really feeling threatened. And so when we shift into these states, our thoughts change as well. This person doesn't love me. I'm not important. Here they go again. They're looking at their phone. You know, all this dialogue around, I don't feel safe anymore from an eye roll or a phone can lead to an escalating story in your head, which basically pours more gasoline. And what we don't realize is that something cued us from a sense of safety to a feeling of, of of not not feeling connected or a feeling of having their back turned or disconnect. And that feeling of disconnect and not feeling connected is extremely painful for a lot of people as it should be because human beings are wired to be in connection. And that pain is experienced in the body and the body is sensing something's wrong. My partner doesn't see me. They're not with me right now. Something feels really off. Yeah. And you were saying like how the whole especially when I'm in a social setting and I'm talking to somebody and they keep looking down on their phone or they're like, I don't know, playing with something in front of them. And I'm in my head, I'm like, gosh, am I annoying them? Am I, am I too much? Am I not enough? It, it, it's that it's anxiety that's going off in my brain. I'm like, okay, like, let me, let me back up a little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you also talk about the critical side to us, which you call the protector in your book. Can you tell mm-hmm. me more about that? Sure. Every part of us is important. And the part of you that says, this person doesn't like me. Am I too much? Am I this? Am I that? Even your anxiety is protecting you from abandonment, from your fears, from failure, from whatever you think it is that we have these voices, these protectors that tell us to leave relationships, tell us to do this, tell us to do that. And they're just trying to keep us safe, usually from our deepest fear. And that's where self-sabotage comes in. I've seen people protect themselves because they're in pain and push people away. I've seen people protect themselves because they're in pain and cling on really hard or go into anger because they're terrified of 
abandonment and only pushes the other person away. And all of these behaviors are protecting something scarier underneath. Does that make sense? Yes, especially I was going to say like, so for instance, childhood abandonment, say like fathers abandoning their their son, their daughter, that could, I feel like it could potentially affect a person's future relationship and project potentially onto the partner about their abandonment issues, if that, that you get the gist of what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, well, unconsciously, sometimes we attract what's familiar. So if you come from a childhood of some kind of neglect or abandonment, you might not see it at first, and the honeymoon phase might be wonderful. But when that partner starts to pull back into their world, all of the abandonment and the neglect might surface in your world. Mm -hmm. that, make, that makes total sense. Um, and so, it's, gosh. And that's actually... the opportunity to heal. It's Yeah. not that you're in the wrong relationship per se. It's like, Yeah. wow, this is all coming up for me. I can't have this person fix it. I now need to hold it and heal it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I, yeah, I, it's, oh, it's chills. Like you stole the words right out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> so you, in the book, you write about selfful and selfless. Can we discuss the means of being selfful and like selfless and be able to distingu
or a selfless place where you're like, what's wrong? Can I fix this? What did I do wrong? So we're always shifting out of these states all day long. And the more you do the inner work, the more you expand what we call the window of tolerance in the science world. But that window of tolerance is like what I like to say, that we expand the selfful state more. And so we can stay in this state unless things, it's not that things don't take us out. It's that we come back to homeostasis. We come back to the selfful place faster. Okay. So basically, so we gotta, we gotta use this, the window more. Well, more. we have to, we have to expand the yeah. window by healing yeah. the uncomfortable things that come up in our body and in our mind in healing relationships. So the more we expand the window, of what it feels like when someone ghosts us or when someone doesn't respond and we touch into what's being awakened and we heal that with another person, the more when that happens, we might shift out into a different state, but we'll come back into um, a, a calmer state faster. So we stop avoiding certain situations and we start to handle certain situations differently. Uh -huh. Okay. And so I was going to actually going to ask you about this and just to be open and honest. Um, so Stockholm syndrome, have you had, I guess, clients that have dealt with that in their past relationships? Yeah, I think, I think that relationships can, there's, people who are scared to be on their own and get into relationships where they get lost in the relational energy that can be very dysfunctioning and feel very familiar and very safe. And it's safer than the unknown. And many people are scared of the unknown because they don't have trust. They don't have support. They don't have safety in the unknown. So they'll stay and convince themselves that certain things are okay because they're familiar and familiar feels safer than uncertainty. Yeah, I I definitely I definitely relate to that a lot cuz I to be open and raw with you, I had just Cliff Notes version, I was basically in a relationship that was very I guess toxic and you never find anybody like me, the whole no one will love you like how I do. Da, 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 da. And so I started believing that for a second until finally I had to like snap myself out of that. And I, I was really Googling Stockholm syndrome. Let me find out if I have this today because <laughs> it's, it's very, I don't know. I, you never thought you'd experience it and you do. And I guess that's like, a, it's in a way I would say somewhat of a, a saving grace. Cause like you, you learned and you got yourself out of it and you survived. I don't know if that's a good thing to say, but everything's a learning lesson. I guess, I guess I'm trying to like paraphrase from what I just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That it was really vulnerable. Thank you, um, thank you. Everything is a learning lesson. And I think, you know, when you get out of situations like that, you start to have more clarity and you start to see that there was fear on both sides. And one person was in their fear, ma manipulating or managing their world so that you wouldn't leave. And in your fear, staying because the other side of that might have been too scary that you might never receive that again. And the truth is both people are really responding in their world in fear states. Yeah, yeah. It's, ugh. Ugh, I love it. Chills. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so I have to ask you. 
So for the people that are on the dating scene, you know, the dates, they go out, they wait for that ner- that that text right after the date. And they're just constantly like thinking, oh, my God, does he like me? Does she like me? So what are some exercises or ways that people can use while they wait for like that text or that phone call after the first day? Because I know it's hard out here in these streets, honey. So, <laughs> so do you have ways of doing of people can use? Ah, I mean, this is really, uh, I mean, trusting the universe that if the, it's the right person, they will make an effort to be in your world. And if they're not making an effort to be in your world, there's another right person and that you don't have to work so hard at feeling fearful. You need to work harder at letting go and trusting your own process and knowing that the right person won't won't play games with you and won't make it complicated and knowing that about yourself because if someone isn't texting back and they could be in their own fear state and they could be you know playing games but if you commit to saying okay this is I want to this is what I want someone who's consistent and reliable and I need to let go and let people show me who they are so that I can make the best decision for myself rather than waiting to see how they react it's more an act of letting go and trusting your own process okay good i'm definitely taking that to account right now (laughs) no because i sometimes i will catch myself i will be like oh no like does he like me but at the same time i'm like you know what if that doesn't work out there's so many other fish in the sea like like I, I, the way I put it, I tell my friends and family, I'm like, another one bites the dust. It's fine. On to the next one. <laughs> I, I have my ways of doing things and putting it into perspective. So I'm like, that's just one way I say it. So um, there's, a, there's a little bit of freedom to that. We can't force another person, but we can say I'm open to love and let love find me. And you know, and trusting your own process that they're they're the right matches out there. That you don't have to. You, you know, you can't fall in love with this idea of someone. If they're not showing you who they are through their actions and their words, then they're probably not for you. Yeah, it's like I was really about to say, I don't know if you've seen the movie Marry Me with J-Lo and uh, Maluma, where she's the pop star and she, well, there's a scene in the movie. It's not really a spoiler, but she was giving a whole speech about you can't marry the, I, I can't marry an idea of a person. And she was just saying, her character was just saying, oh, I fell for a lie. And I definitely took that into account. And like, I can't marry or not marry, but get into a relationship with the idea of a person I think they might be. And so I don't want to settle for less than what I'm worth. Absolutely. And I also think most people put their best foot forward and most people try to show their best side first. And I think a lot of people, not all are genuinely trying. Right. And so we fall in love with the side that we see and there's nothing wrong with that. But as relationship stages progress, protectors, insecurities, and fear comes up. And so that changes how someone might show up differently. And so you just don't know until that dance starts how that might look like. But if someone's showing up and treating you really well, it doesn't mean that they're ill-intended or um, 
trying to only show you one side. They're trying to show you their best side. And sometimes that changes when their fears start to show up. Yeah, I definitely I've I've experienced that with people and potential partners. So I definitely can I I can attest to that. <laughs> um so let's take a quick deep dive of uh, dating apps. I sometimes I get people that tell me after we go on a first date, "Oh yeah, I'm just looking for friends." I'm just like, "Oh, so you got on an app to find a friend?" So what is your I guess How is your, how do I say this? Your outlook of people that end up just saying, oh, I am looking for friends, but I got on a dating app. That is, in my head, I'm like, that, that makes no sense. I, you know, I can't really speak too much about dating apps, but um, I think that people need to be honest about what they're looking for. And if they're looking for a friend, that's okay, but say it. If they're looking to have a longer, meet someone and have a more fulfilling relationship, say it. Be transparent about what you want and what you're looking for so that you're not um, setting yourself up for disappointment on either side of the street. Yeah, I, um, when you go, just in general, dating in today's age, it's so, it's such a, it's such a game of, I don't know, not survival, but it's just, it's such a game of life that you're just trying to play and get adjusted to it. And yeah, it's a lot. It 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 it. I mean, I I don't know because it's been a long time, and uh, it's probably changed due to the nature of how transactional our society has become. Yes, and how people can just swipe one way or another. And I imagine that it's a pretty vulnerable place to be. But also, I think, I mean, I'm, that you know, if you can be confident in yourself and just keep showing up and being true to yourself, you're going to match with someone who's a good match for you and that you don't have to overthink it too much. You just need to keep staying positive and open and honest. All right. Yeah. I, I you heard it here for first folks. You heard it here first. Um, so then I guess let's transition into what do you think is healthy chemistry in a relationship versus I guess when in the nervous system comes into play and makes things go awry or awry. Why am I saying awry? That's a complicated question. And I think this is what I'll say for your audiences. If you are getting excited about someone who's inconsistent, unavailable, texts you one minute, doesn't text you back another, and all of a sudden that person becomes more exciting than maybe someone who's consistent and kind and nurturing. Your nervous system is used to the excitement and the adrenaline and the dopamine of the unavailable or inconsistency. And that's actually, it's not the kind of chemistry that you want. And you might be trying to prove your sense of self-worth through attaining someone who is really not available. And so if the charge goes up because they didn't text you back, you kind of want to look at that like that's your trauma. What do you really want? Do you want a long, stable relationship or do you want a roller coaster? And so being really honest with yourself around why am I excited that this person texts me back and they're available one day and not the next or et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and 
that excitement doesn't mean longevity or a fulfilling relationship at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, yes, I, like I said again earlier, I tested that a lot. <laughs> um, so for pe the daddy issues, the, that scenario, uh -huh. I'll have to say, um, my ex, he was, he had similar traits to my father. So do you believe people tend to search for that in their prospective partner? Cause like they've didn't have their father figure or their mother figure in their life. So they, in a way they want that to be, I guess, in their life at the, at the moment. That's an and, but answer. So um, the theory shows that we attract people who have both positive and negative traits of our primary caregiver. What that means is you could have a partner who has 10 different traits and the ones that remind you or are familiar or you react to or awaken something in you are usually the things that you've experienced before. So if, if the person is really warm and nurturing, there's a good chance you might've experienced that before or not. But if the person is an alcoholic, there's a chance you might've grown up in an environment where one person, one of your primary caregivers was checked out and you're replaying that. And so unconsciously we have a energetic signature and frequency that we send out and we are attracted to certain people for certain and many reasons. And none of those are wrong. But, you know, we are always trying to heal. And so sometimes we'll attract someone who has traits that will bring up or awaken things enough in order to heal them. Mm -hmm. I I definitely, I could, I get, yeah, I feel that. I, under, I understand that. And I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But Jessica, this has been such an eye-opening. I can't wait to finish your book. But before we sign off, where can we find it? It's everywhere. It's in 10 countries, which I'm really excited, but it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And you can just Google anxiously attached or Jessica Baum. It pops up. It's everywhere. I really put my heart and soul into that book. And um, I'm so glad that it's out in the world and it's getting into the hands of the right readers. Yes, definitely. It came into the hands of the right reader, for sure. <laughs> I don't know if y'all can't see this, but I'm holding the, the book up to the camera. Uh, but Jessica, thank you so much for this. You've, uh, you're gonna, I can't, you're gonna keep changing lives. I'm so, I, I just love you so much. And I thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a great talk and I'm excited for it to air. Yes, of course. Well, thank you all so much for tuning into this week's episode of Doing Your Best with the Rest podcast. I love you guys so much and I'll see you next week.